No, no, not me. He's petrified. This fear seizes him and leads him into sin. She wasn't a Roman gladiator with a sword drawn. Are you one of his disciples? She's the servant girl. You see, when we're distracted and when we're not paying attention, that's when Satan pounces. That's when he sets us up for temptation. That's why I think Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the book that Peter wrote to believers. He gives us this truth. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Think about that. Peter said, your enemy is always on the prowl. He's always looking. He's laying in wait. He's ready to pounce in a moment's notice. So be alert. Be vigilant. Have you ever watched a Discovery Channel special, probably on how lions hunt? Lions don't walk around roaring. Roar, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. They don't do that, do they? No, that would scare lunch away, right? So they sneak. Very quiet. They're very stealthy. They're down in the grass. They're hunkering. And cats, we had cats growing up, but it was fun to watch cats. They're a very playful animal. You know, they'd sneak up on somebody's foot or something like that. We'd dangle things, and boy, they, they sneak in, and they do those little legs like this, and they, and they pounce on you, you know. It's funny when it's a cat in your living room. Dude, imagine being the animal out in the, the jungle plains. You know, you're, you're eating, and, and what do lions target? You know, you watch these, what, what do lions go after? They go after the animal that's over by itself, that's isolated, that, that, that's weak, that's, that's distracted, not paying attention to the little gazelle. Oh, this grass is good. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I'm liking it. I'm like, oh, my belly's full. Uh, the herd's over. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And then, oh, snap, it's the lion. And you're done. You know, he's on the menu already. That's what Satan does. He lies in wait. He's unsuspecting. You let your guard down. Bam. He is on top of you. Satan doesn't walk up and go, hi, I'm Satan. I'm here to ruin your life. Will that be okay with you? Let's do it. It doesn't work that way, does it? Attractive women don't walk up to men and say, hey, I'd like to ruin your marriage and destroy your life. What do you say we give it a go, big boy? (laughs) It doesn't present itself that way, does it? Bartenders sitting at the bar don't say, hey, you want some pain? You want some heartache? You want some addiction? Uh, You want some suffering? You want some death? It's right here in this glass. Be glad to give it to you for five bucks. They, They don't offer it that way, do they? Pornographers don't advertise that they want to get you started on a path to addiction that will follow you all the days of your life and destroy intimacy in your marriage and give you such a dark, burdensome secret that you will suffer in silence thinking you will never be free from that bondage. They don't peddle it that way, do they? That doesn't sell in the advertising world. No one wants to sign up for that, right? Now, that's the end result of what you get, but they don't peddle it that way. Paul says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Dude, think about that picture. Paul is saying Satan looks like an angel. If he looked like himself, you'd go, ah, and you would run away. But he doesn't look like that. He looks good, appealing, attractive, so that we're drawn to him. Sometimes the most dangerous temptations are the most alluring. 
Sometimes that which you think will help actually destroys. And that which promises deliverance, freedom, rest will bring bondage, will bring despair and weariness to your life. Peter also wrote in warning us to be vigilant and alert to Satan's schemes. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Cleverly devised myths. What is a myth? It is something that is not true. And you find out that it's not true. We have a big holiday coming up in two months. In case there are some of you here not so under that myth. It's coming up. It's not true, right? And there's that day when, when our children find out, what? You mean it's not true? It's a myth. And Peter tells us that Satan's myths are cleverly devised. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does the word plausible mean? It means it's reasonable. It means it's believable. It means it's conceivable. So Satan sets up these plausible arguments. Oh, that makes sense. I can see how that would work. Oh, maybe that's how that would work out. But it's a myth. And the thing about these plausible arguments and these myths is we don't realize it until we're way far in and much damage is done and many consequences are set in motion. And praise God, Jesus can rescue us. He can set us free from these myths and these plausible arguments and he can free us uh, from Satan and, and, and rescue us from him and his clutches. But you know what? The consequences still remain. We can be forgiven, but some consequences remain after that. We can't undo the damage and the hurt and the destruction in other people's lives or the damage that's been done to our bodies as a result of buying into these plausible arguments and these clever myths. So church, we've got to be alert to Satan's schemes because as with Peter, when we get distracted, Satan will pounce and he will tempt us and we will, we will sin against God. So Peter then gets into the courtyard and his situation goes from bad to worse. He jumps, as the old saying goes, out of the frying pan into the fire or at least near the fire, right? Because he walks in, he gets, he gets in the courtyard, and I, I just use your sanctified imagination. I think it's totally fair to think that Peter, as he got into the courtyard, after he denied knowing Christ to the servant girl, went, you moron, what are you doing? Jesus told you you would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, and I told him that I wouldn't do it. I said I would die before I would deny him, and this little girl asked me if I'm a disciple, and I said, no, I'm not. What is wrong with you, Peter? Get it together, dude. And I think Peter went, not again. He said three times, I, I, she caught me off guard. I, I was surprised it will not happen the second and third time. I'm determined I will not deny Christ these next two times. And he's going through this in his mind. I'm not going to do it. You ever been there? You ever sinned, given into temptation, succumbed in the, in, the, in, the, in the moment to something that you knew was wrong? And then there's this guilt and there's this shame and there's this frustration, this anger that settles in of, why did I do that? I know better. I knew better then. I know better now. But you know what? I'm not going to do it again. I'm done. I'm finished. That was the last time it will ever happen. I will not put myself in the situation. I will not give in to that temptation ever again. And you do great for a day or for a week or maybe you go a month or maybe you go a couple of months. But then what happens? We let our guard down, we're in situation, Satan sets the temptation, and we 
give in to it again. We were determined we weren't going to. We had great intentions and pure hearts. We weren't going to do this again. And then we do it again. And then what happens? We feel great guilt and we feel great shame. We feel great disappointment in ourselves. We feel unworthy, unable to be used by God because we said we weren't going to do this again and we did it again. So I think Peter's determined, I'm not going to do this again. So he comes into the courtyard, I'm not going to do this again, I'm not going to do this again. He wants to blend in. You know, who's the guy over standing by himself in the shadows? Well, let's go find out. He doesn't want that kind of attention. So he just kind of casually meanders over by the fires. People around him will go fit in. And I think he looks around the fire. And the soundtrack in his mind is OMG. Because who's around the fire? The Roman soldiers and the temple guards who had just arrested Jesus. They dropped him off and then they're milling around the fire waiting for their next assignment. And what's going on? I would imagine they're probably saying, they're talking about the night. Man, did you see what happened? You know, what was that getting knocked back, you know, earlier tonight? You know, what happened to you? What happened to you? You know, all those disciples ran away, a bunch of cowards. If I ever got my hands on them, you wait. So Peter's now standing around all these these guards and these soldiers at the fire, and one of them looks at him and says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples too? Weren't you with him? And then Peter's soundtrack that was, I'm not going to deny Christ, I'm not going to deny Christ is, ooh, are they going to arrest me? Are they going to kill me here? What's going to happen? Totally shifts, doesn't it? The pressure, the fear, the anxiety. And so Peter, no, 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 I'm not one of his disciples. And you see, you realize that they were talking about Jesus' arrest because it's known that one of the guys who's there was a relative of the guy whose ear got cut off. Yeah, my cousin was out there, and this one, he reached out, and he cut off my cousin's ear. You know, Jesus, it was pretty amazing. He put his ear back on. But, dude, if I ever got my hands on that guy, you, you don't even know what I would do to him. And that's my flesh and blood. You don't do that to my family, buddy. Hey, weren't you in the garden with him? And Peter's, oh, uh, and here's the thing. It was not illegal to be in the garden with Jesus that night. However, it is illegal and was illegal to strike out at a Roman soldier. It was against the law. So in this moment of panic, Peter for the third time denies Christ. And Mark tells us in his account in chapter 14, verse 71, that Peter, to add emphasis and to get the attention off of him, that he called down curses upon himself. He's so emphatic that, no, I don't know this Jesus. Everybody's like, okay, okay, dude, we believe you. We believe you, okay, chill out. And Luke 22 tells us at just that moment, as Peter denied Christ the third time, that the rooster began to crow. And it says, from across the courtyard where he was captured, where he was standing trial, Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. And they made eye contact. And there's a lot of speculation about what was conveyed in the eyes of Jesus. Maybe he got the old parental, I told you so look. You know, you had that one, your parents. Told you not to take your money to school. Somebody would steal it or you would lose it. Mm-hmm. You've had that look, right? The I told you so look. Maybe people speculate it was the look of disgust and disappointment. Peter, I cannot believe it. You told me you weren't going to do this. You said you would die before you would deny me. That didn't sound like you were going to die before you were denying me. And what was that look like? I believe the look was one of love and mercy and compassion. That Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, I knew it was going to happen. I knew this was coming, but you know what, Peter? I still love you. That's going to be forgiven through my death. And Peter, I got big plans for you. 
this isn't going to stop us. It's not going to stop me. I'm going to overcome your sin with my death. And Peter, you're going to serve me. You're going to do great things for me. It's okay. It's okay, buddy. Hold your head up. You're going to be fine. I think that's what Peter, that, that's what Jesus was trying to convey to Peter. But Luke tells us that after Jesus looked at Peter, that Peter ran out and he wept bitterly. You see, Peter didn't get the message. Peter felt what I think we felt. And look, I, you probably don't even need me to walk you through this, but have you been there? Have you been in Peter's shoes before in your relationship and your walk with Christ? You felt the isolation. You let your guard down. You weren't paying attention. Something came up suddenly, the heat of the moment. You weren't prepared. You weren't thinking. And fear, pressure, panic sets in. You sin. You deny Christ with your actions, with your words. And then that guilt and that shame anger at yourself, the disappointment that you know God must feel because you let him down, it just comes rushing in and the tears begin to flow and the sorrow and the grief is so real and so powerful. You ever been there? I think we can all say, man, I know that part of the story. And you may be sitting there going, um, isn't the sermon title, Be Like Jesus? What does this have to do with how we should do anything related to Jesus? He's not even in the story other than what you just told us about looking at Peter. Well, what I want to encourage you to emulate about Jesus actually comes from John chapter 21. If you'll flip over there, it should be about two chapters, three chapters to your right. The context of John 21 is Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's appeared to the disciples, let them know that he's alive, and then he disappeared. He hadn't gone back to heaven, hadn't given them the great commission, their final marching orders. He just, we know he's alive, but we don't know where he is. So they had gone back to fishing. That was what many of them had done as a profession before Jesus called them. So they're fishing. Uh, I think part of it was that Peter probably had such a guilt and such a shame at having denied Christ that Pete, he thought to himself his opportunity at ministry was over. Yeah. How can you lead the disciples when you cursed and denied their leader? Right? I mean, it's just, I think this guilt and the shame of, well, God can't use me. I might as well go back and return to my old life. Why even bother? Why even try? Because I'm such a disappointment and a failure to God. He can't use a guy like me. He looked right at me when I denied him. He knows I denied him. So they're fishing. They've been fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus appears on the shore. He did what he did. He kind of hid himself. They didn't realize it was his real identity. He said, hey, put your nets on the other side of the boat. So they did which they had also done the first time Jesus called them to come and be fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. And so they put their nets on the other side. They caught a bunch of fish and Peter's like, it's Jesus. And so he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. And I think in this little bit of time, I'm always like, oh, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be awkward? Is he going to, you know, fuss at me? Is he going to tell you, I, tell me I told you so? What's it going to be like? Or maybe he'll just ignore it. Maybe it's just gone. We don't have to deal with it. It's just, you know, kind of the past is the past. Bygones are bygones. Maybe it'll be good. I think Peter realizes that it's not going to be that easy. In verse 9, it says, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. I think Peter went, really? Are you kidding? Oh, a charcoal fire. You probably came in this morning. You never realized that the words charcoal fire were in the Bible at all. Now you've seen it twice, right? Peter's denial and here on the shore. There was a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Let me ask you this. 
what happens in your heart and your spirit and your mind when you travel by places of your greatest failures, of your greatest sin against God, of your greatest disappointments in life? You know, part of the beauty of moving 10 hours away from where you grew up is I don't have to go by those places very often. (laughs) But we've been home and we travel in sometimes and I, I, I go by my old high school and there's a part of me that cringes on the inside. Oh, Curtis, man, you knew better. All the, why did you not, why did you not resist? Why didn't you stand firm? Why were you so caught up in those things at that age and that stage in life? And maybe that happens to you when you drive by your high school. Maybe you drive by a home of a previous marriage or of people that you were not kind to, that you bullied, that you were less than Christ-like to. I I don't know, but but how do you feel when you go to those places? It's probably not positive feelings, right? I think that's what Peter was sensing as he got on shore and saw that charcoal fire that, oh, no, Jesus remembers. He knows what I've done, and I think he was probably bracing himself for what was about to come his way, and I think he had no clue what was about to come his way. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I can't even tell you how many pages have been written trying to define what in the world these is. Some people speculate that Jesus was saying, Simon, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than your career? I called you and told you you were going to be a fisher of men, and now you've gone back to fishing again. Peter, are you going to serve me? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to do what I call you to do? Peter, do you love me more than these stinking fish? Do you love me more than your career? Are you willing to give up your career, your livelihood, what's secure, what's comfortable for you? Will you give it up to follow me? Do you love me more than these? Other people say, no, 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 Jesus was referencing the disciples. The disciples. He was asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? Your friends, your co-workers, you know, you've been with them, you've been disciples, you've worked with them. Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? Others are saying, no, Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than the other guy's affection for Jesus. Peter, do you love me more than John loves me? Do you love me more than Andrew loves me? Do you love me more than Philip loves me? Peter, is your love greater for me than their love for me? It's kind of like the parent-child back and forth. I love you, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. I love you this much. You get in your argument with your kids about how much more you love them. Is that the conversation? Here's the bottom line. We don't really know what it is, but we know that Jesus said to Peter, and Peter recognized whatever it was, do you love me more than these? And we see Peter's response to Jesus was, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, feed my lambs. Now this will be important later, feed, giving food to lambs. What are lambs? Baby sheep, baby sheep, remember that. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend, not feeding now, but tending my sheep. Well, what are sheep? They're adult lambs, all grown up, right? So tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And look at this, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? You see, Peter remembered his denials and he was keenly aware of the fact that Jesus was aware of his denials and he felt this grief 
and this shame, this unworthiness to be in the presence of Christ. He was grieved that Jesus asked him the third time. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So he's back to feed again, the adult sheep. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This passage is called Peter's reinstatement where Jesus comes to him and you know what Jesus does he takes him to the place of his greatest failure his greatest disappointment he takes him to the place to the thing that Peter would point to for the rest of his life and say I can't serve God because of that Jesus takes him to that place and he says Peter it's forgiven It's cleansed, it's over, it's done with. That is no more. Your future is what I want to focus on, Peter. I've got plans, I've got purposes, I've got a call on your life. Peter, that's what I want you to focus on. Follow me and feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, I want to use you for my kingdom. Jesus forgave. It's interesting, they're having this conversation and this goes around forgiveness because Peter is the one who had asked Jesus before, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? And what Jesus tell him? 70 times seven. Do that math, that's 490 times. You go, okay, I got, I got my number, 490 times. Well, listen, the key isn't the number. What Jesus is saying to us is forgiveness is limitless. Because here's the thing, if you're keeping a ledger of how many times you've forgiven someone, guess what? You've never forgiven them. Your spouse comes to you, I'm sorry, I've not been this, I've not done what I need to, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Yeah, that's time 238 right there. Getting close to your limit, you better slow it down, buddy. We've only been married six months. You're going to run out quick. That person is saying, I've never forgiven you. If I'm keeping count of how many times I've forgiven, I've not forgiven you in the first place. So Jesus comes to Peter and he talks about, he speaks of this forgiveness. And how does he show Peter he's forgiven him? He takes him and three times, Peter had denied Christ three times, Peter got to look Jesus in the eye and say, I love you. And here's the awesome thing that I want you to understand about how Jesus meets you where you are, that place of disappointment and sin to let you know that you're forgiven. When Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? The first time, Jesus uses the Greek word for love in the verbal form agapao, which is from agape love. There are three kinds of love in the Greek language. Agape love is unconditional, limitless, no strings attached love. Phileo love is a brotherly love and affection to to just, you know, brother, sister in Christ, a good friend of yours. The city of Philadelphia comes from this word, the city of brotherly love. The third kind of love is eros, erotic, sexual kind of love. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agapao me? Do you have unconditional love for me, Peter? Peter responded to Christ, Lord, I phileo, I have a brotherly love for you. I think Peter was so ashamed and guilt-ridden that he would say, Lord, I can't even say to you that I have unconditional love because, Lord, I'm not strong enough to make that commitment. I've proven that to you. 
So Jesus says a second time, Peter, do you agapao? Do you unconditionally love me? And Peter says, Lord, I phileo. I have a brotherly love. But Lord, it's not all-consuming. It's not strong because I'm weak and I failed you. So the third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, okay, let's start where you are, son. Do you phileo love me? In the Greek language, the third time Jesus asked the question, he used Peter's term. Peter, I'm going to meet you where you are. I know you're not ready to say that you love me unconditionally. You're going to one day. Man, I'm going to grow you, and I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to do great things in your life. But you're not ready right now. But you know what, Peter? Let's start where you are. Do you have a phileo love for me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I have a phileo love for you. Then come follow me, Peter. And we see this progression in Peter's life. Feed my lambs, baby sheep. Peter would be the guy who at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, preached the message of salvation, delivered the gospel message, invited people to believe in Christ. 3,000 people were saved that day. Those are baby sheep. Those are lambs. And so Peter and the disciples began to feed them and, and care for them. Then they tended to them as they grew and said, okay, you guys are growing. Now here's what Christ wants you to do. He wants you to take the gospel message to the world. Peter set that example. Acts chapter 10, Peter goes and delivers the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman soldier who he and his household believe and respond to the gospel or baptize. Peter comes back to the Jews and says, hey, salvation has gone to the world unbelievers, Gentiles are now responding to the gospel. So you know what God wants us, his sheep to do? He wants us to go take this message. So now go and tell them the good news of Christ. And then finally, it says to feed my sheep is the last command that Jesus gives him. In, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 21, Peter writes to the church, the gathered believers, and tells them to build their lives on God's word. And he assures them of its truthfulness and of its faithfulness, that it's right and it's sure, and they should build their lives on God's word. So he says to feed those sheep on the diet of God's word. So here's what I want you to learn in this series about be like Jesus. I want to encourage you to forgive. If you want to be like Jesus, you need to forgive. Three times Peter denied Christ. Those were negatives. Three times Peter got to say he loved Christ. I'm not a math whiz, but when you put negative three and positive three together, what do you get? Zero. You're back to square one. Clean start, fresh slate. So forgiveness is what we experience that Christ does for us. Jesus forgave Peter and he will forgive you. But there's another part of this that I want to remind you of as well. I think the choice that was set before Peter was, would he accept the forgiveness of Christ and allow Christ to use him to share the good news of the gospel with others? Self-forgiveness, accepting God's forgiveness is often the hardest part of forgiveness that we struggle with. We see it, we understand it, but our heart doesn't want to receive it. We don't feel worthy. We don't feel capable of being used by God to do anything of value or worth for his kingdom. But I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 5 to answer the question, did Peter forgive himself? Did he accept Christ's forgiveness? Did he follow in obedience? I just told you a little bit, but in Acts chapter 5, we see where the disciples are out. Verse 12 of Acts 5 says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the, the people held them in high esteem. And look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. 
Do you realize Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were saved in one day, and Acts chapter 5 says more than ever people were being added to the Lord. More than 3,000 in a single day? Uh, yeah, that fits the definition of revival and spiritual awakening. All right? I mean, it, it's incredible what God is doing. And look at this next verse, verse 15. So that e- they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Peter, who had tried to rebuke Christ and Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who attacked the guard in the garden and Jesus rebuked him and said, no, Peter, we're not going to do it this way. This is the path I'm going to take. Peter, who denied Christ three times and saw and looked into the eyes of Jesus immediately upon those denials, Peter accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And he committed his life. Peter gave Jesus the throne of his life. He gave him control and Jesus used him in a great and powerful way for the gospel. And I want you to hear this account today and know that God can do the same in your life. Forgive you of your sins so that you can receive that forgiveness and be used in a great and powerful way for his kingdom. So as we come to our response time where you're given the opportunity to respond to what God has spoken to you about today, are you, are you alert? Are you paying attention? Or has Satan got you under his thumb? He, he's attacked. He's got you in his clutches. Jesus Christ can free you from that today. If you admit your sin, confess it, turn away from it, Jesus forgives, us, forgives you of that and sets you free from that sin. Secondly, let's talk about forgiveness. Have you accepted the forgiveness of Christ? Do you believed it was for you and responded to that forgiveness? Are you then extending it to other people? Or are you harboring unforgiveness, resentment, frustration against other people? You know, Christ forgives us and then he calls us to forgive others. And in forgiving others, we proclaim the gospel People see and know what Christ has done for us and they receive it and they accept it for themselves. So this morning, I want you to leave with this thought in your mind. I want you to know that Jesus Christ will forgive you of your sins. And I want you to accept that forgiveness. And then I want you to realize what a precious gift you've been given. And I want you to draw close to Christ and surrender yourself, lay yourself down, give him authority in your life so that he can take your life and he can use your testimony, your witness, your example, your words to share the good news of Christ with others so that they too can be forgiven of their sins and experience the fullness and the new life in Christ 